Hello and welcome to the Golf World Podcast, a show all about education and inclusion. I'm Richard Ingram. Teachers, it is often said, hold the key to better learning opportunities. They stand face to face with tomorrow's generation. They make decisions every day that will affect their students for the rest of their lives. These are often the people that have already come up with the solution to a challenge months before it even reaches the desk of a policymaker or NGO worker. Yet they are more often than not left out of the conversations that shape the future of education. They're rarely given a seat at the table of power. My guest this week not only understands this problem, but has done more than most to rectify it. Vikas Pota is the founder and CEO of T4 Education, a digital media platform he established as a response to the challenges posed by the pandemic to education globally. T4 is building the world's largest community of teachers and schools and is providing opportunities for educators to network, collaborate, share best practices, and support each other's efforts to improve learning. At the time of recording, this community has over 20,000 members in 165 countries. T4 works to amplify teachers' voices because, as Vickers puts it, the world in which every child receives their birthright of a good education cannot wait to be built by top-down reform. It must be powered by grassroots change. Vickers was previously CEO of a philanthropic foundation, and along with being recognised as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum, he's listed as one of London's 1,000 most influential people. Vickers was recently named European Regional Honoree of the 2022 YPO Global Impact Award. Vickers Pota, welcome to the Golf 4 podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Richard. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you on. So the children of today are growing up in a rapidly changing world. The effects of climate change are all too evident. The rise of artificial intelligence has the potential to completely disrupt current job markets. And inequality seems to be on the rise in almost every country. In the face of such challenges, how important is it that all children have access to a quality education? Richard, you know, when I think about this question, I, 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 I imagine if you were here like 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, today we talk about AI, there would have been another thing that would have come up saying, what's, you know, what, what, what do we do in, in, in the face of such dramatic change? And the thing that I learned through my, my career, my life, is how education is such a bedrock for all progress. And so when I think about, when I think about all the major challenges that we face, uh, whether it's in low-income countries, whether it's in high-resource countries like where we are today, you know, I, I always think of it in terms of, well, I'm sure the world would be a much better place if people were more knowledgeable, if they were more experienced, had a different perspective. And I think that that comes through education. And so uh, I, you know, I think it's fundamentally important that we still strive to make sure that every single child in this world goes to school, learns well. But equally, it's not just about children, it's also about adults. If you look at a lot of the challenges we face today, whether it's in our politics or whether it's in our macro thematic issues, whether it's climate or whatever it is, you know, these are adults making decisions. And I think we're in a situation where we have an information overload. And your ability to distill and discriminate and actually come to views, I think is quite interesting and, and it's an important opportunity that comes through education. So that's why I'm so, I'm so motivated to make sure that every single person has the best potential, uh, potential opportunities to learn. Absolutely. And we mentioned some challenges there. A huge one recently was the, the COVID pandemic. 
Mm-hmm. Um, this made headlines in education. It was a shock to education systems that had an untold impact on learning and child development. And during school closures, you saw how important it was for teachers to be heard and to be central to arguments and adaptations in areas such as remote learning, just to name one. And to help you do this, you set up T4. Can you tell me a bit about this initiative? Yeah, sure. So at the beginning of the pandemic, actually, I brought together a group of friends of mine who are teachers from around the world, expecting 2030 to join, but 230 came. And in that call, and, you know, I was watching them on, on social media channels, and I could see that the stresses that they were going through. So that's why I called for this for this meeting as it were, on, on Zoom. And um, in that call, we went from, you know, Australia all the way to Chile, so around the world, trying to understand, like, you know, what, how they were, what they were experiencing, how they were feeling. And it was just a check-in. And what I came to learn, actually, at the end of it, that they were all asking a very similar question, but perhaps weren't able to articulate it in this way, which is, what does the new normal mean for us? And I can understand that, you know, I can understand why no one was trying to help them with that, because there was so much into the weeds of, you know, of making sure the continuity uh, occurred that I said, okay, let's meet in a month's time and let's bring some structure to that discussion. Uh, and so we said, let's look at well-being, collaboration, leadership and technology as four themes and how they pertain and how they relate to the teaching profession, uh, given everything that we're experiencing in during the pandemic and, and COVID. And what do we think the new normal will be with these four things? And, you know, lo and behold, in a month's time, you know, we had 103,000 teachers show up for this conversation. And that was pretty, pretty petrifying, if I'm being honest, like sitting at home and hosting a call with that number of people, but just showed the interest and you hit a nerve. Uh, and from there, I've come to realize, actually, you know, the thing that teachers want most and, and what I've learned about the pandemic is the importance of community, actually. And that's what I've committed to, to building at T4, which is a very large and engaged community of teachers. Because I learned, I learned in, during that process, actually, there were, there were three really big things, that lessons um, that I, I take away from the pandemic. The first being that, you know, um, there's never been such a phenomenon in the world where, where everyone has been hum- humbled at the same time. You know, and so what yeah. happens in that situation, what happens is that whether I'm in a, in a rich country, uh, whether I'm in a not so rich country, like, you know, I'm still looking for solutions and whoever has a solution, I'm willing to listen to. And so I saw these most incredible examples of like, you know, schools in London reaching out and finding, finding lessons from schools in Bangladesh as an example. And I just think, wow, yeah, that, that underscores this the whole concept of community helping each other. And actually, it's what you and I would call peer-to-peer learning, uh, which we know, which we know is the game changer. And but here we have, you know, COVID has kind of facilitated for that to happen, actually. And it's a one of the winds of change that I think we should get behind, uh, if I'm being honest. The second thing was the second lesson that I learned was just the technological advancement that had come. Like, you know, for many years I had sat there thinking about, well, you know, people don't have connectivity, they don't have devices, and that kind of limited my approach to many things. Uh, but what the pandemic showed me was, well, you know, actually connectivity and devices do exist. In all these places, I thought previously that teachers would never or, or they would never be able to participate in such kind of conferences, events, uh, professional learning events. Um, these kinds of opportunities may not be taken up. But you know, my data showed me that in the middle of Nigeria, as an example, where I've always said well, connectivity is an issue. Well, we had like 30 teachers. That, you know, if I think about all these wonderful places that, that teachers were, were tuning in from and, and actually engaging with us on, I was really inspired by that. And I think those technological changes 
are here to stay. And I think it's a welcome thing. Um, and then the third thing was something I've always known, but I, I, I'm, I'm not an educator. You know, I've never taught. And I, I have a little bit of imposter syndrome when it comes to this. You know, uh, whenever someone talks to me about me being a teacher, I'm thinking, no, 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 hold on, that's not me. Don't uh, worry, I was, I was a teacher and I was full of imposter syndrome the whole time, but there's <laughs> nothing new there. And, but the thing I learned quite early on in, throughout my career was whenever I put a teacher up front to say something, as opposed to like a policy expert or a politician mm -hmm. or a public figure, there was just far greater resonance. Um, and people just believed it a lot more. And I think it's what, you know, you and I, again, would, would talk about being, you know, peer-to-peer -peer, um, and the importance of peer-to-peer. -peer. And so when teachers speak, we should listen, is my general approach. Um, they are the experts. They're, in, they're at the coal face every day. And we've entrusted them to, to teach our kids. Um, and it's kind of perverse that when you go to all these UN meetings, I know you do some work for UNESCO. And, and like, you know, when you go to these places, you go to these high-level panels, you won't see one teacher. Uh, and that just strikes me as being the oddest situation that we find ourselves in. And so I was keen to provide a platform to teachers to actually come together, you know, learn uh, together, collaborate with each other, share uh, effectively, um, and actually provide them opportunity for growth. And so that's how I think about T4. Uh, it's again, the, the, the concept is very simple. We're trying to build community because I think that is what I've learned that, through the pandemic that matters the most. It's um and it's really taken off. How mm. I mean, you mentioned that you had one hundred and three thousand teachers mm. fairly early on as well in the project. Yeah. How how can people get involved now? And and to, to follow that question up, is it just teachers that get involved, or should you know we we mentioned people like UNESCO staff or development partners? Are they are they going to jump into the same platform? Does that open up discourse between the two groups? Yeah, so they're most welcome, but, but our primary audience isn't isn't that. Primary membership of our community is made up of educators, like, you know, who are engaged in so many discussions now between each other because we've facilitated these things. Um, sure, as a policy person or a, or a researcher, you're more than welcome to and actually share uh, effectively. Um, uh, and so, yes, please do join us. Um, you know, what, what we've done is we've also learned in terms of well, what engages uh, these educators, actually. And so what we've structured ourselves in, in three ways. One is around professional learning. And so whether it's conferences, events, you know, professional learning communities, we have an app for teachers that they can download off the iOS and Android stores and join in this global uh, conversation. Um, there's so many opportunities that come from that, actually. And it's really, it's really taken off at our end in terms of just, just teachers joining. Um, and actually engaging. And the key thing is the engagement as opposed to, you know, just being joining a, you know, a group on Facebook or somewhere like that and just, just sitting there and watching passively, which is fine, but actually we want, we want to encourage enga engagement. So that's the one strand of things. The second strand of things is research, actually. You know, I've always been interested as teachers as researchers. And one of the things that I've, I've tried to do in the past is, is actually when I wanted to conduct some research, look for panels of teachers you know, for, 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 for polling, as an example, you can often find a panel in a country, but you can't find a multi-jurisdictional panel of teachers that you can systematically work with. So we've created that in our community. Uh, the opportunity there is to influence, you know, uh, to influence how decision makers think. Uh, so we've done projects for the EdTech Hub, we've done projects for big tech companies, we've done, uh, and teachers get involved and they, they you know, they're, they're, uh, their views and opinions are sought after and feed into a process 
um, that enables better policy to be made or better products to be designed and launched. And I think that's really powerful. Uh, and then the third aspect of what we do is, you know, again, when I think about schools, I see them as a platform to celebrate learning and success. Um, that's what we want every every school to be. And actually, you know, awards, prizes and challenges uh, do very well in school communities. And so uh, we've set up a prize called the World's Best School Prize um, as a way of actually surfacing incredible school-based expertise, um, you know, and finding finding a way to disseminate these learning so that all schools become stronger. Uh, that's the objective there. The prize is a, is a great mechanism for that. It's not the be all and end all, but what's more important is uh, this belief that, you know, expertise exists everywhere in the world. It's that example I gave you about Bangladesh teaching a school in London, like, you know, what to do? Well, that's a, that underscores this, uh, this thing about, you know, um, we can learn from other places. And I think that's a really powerful thing. And that's what the, the World's Best School Prize tries to do. And, you know, I should give a plug uh, because I know that uh, I know that we're in the second cycle and our application deadline from schools uh, is on the 15th of March. So you have just five weeks to apply for this year's uh, prizes. There are five categories, uh, all linked and research back kind of areas. So, for example, schools that we know that are good at community partnership and collaboration do better than those that are not. Schools that empower young people to take environmental action do better than those that are not. Schools that are innovative to the core uh, do better than those that are not. Schools that know how to build resilience and overcome adversity do better than those that are not. And the last one is schools that prioritize the healthy living of their, their learners and their communities do better than those that are not. And if you're a school that has, has been transformed, come and share how that, that journey of transformation so that others can learn. And we use a, a prize kind of framework for that. Um, and if you win, you get $50,000. And so there's a pool of $250,000 that we give out every year. Um, and so we have until the 15th of March. If you're a school that has wants to, wants to be known as the world's best school in one of these five categories, wants to, wants to, wants to share, and be, lead a community conversation as to how others can replicate your practice, then please go to our website, which is worldsbestschool.org. I'll put all those links in the show notes. I'm glad you, you mentioned the world's best school prizes because I wanted to ask you about that. I was reading last year in an opinion piece for the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. You wrote about the UN's Transforming Education Summit. In the article, you stated that if world leaders aren't ready to admit that they don't have all the answers, that we can only begin to tackle the global education crisis if we listen to those on its front lines, then educators at the coalface must raise their voices to be heard. This is really in line with the, the world's best school prizes, of course. Do you have any great examples of prize-winning innovations? Yeah, so the first thing I want to tell you is why I've come to this view, actually. Uh, you know, and so, you know, I used to run a philanthropic foundation uh, prior to setting up T4. And, you know, we were very much focused on system transformation, systemic impact, and that kind of thing, which is very fashionable, and sometimes the right thing to do, you know, and what, you know, we must have spent, uh, you know, humongous amount of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, on this endeavor. And what the pandemic has, show, has shown me is, well, despite spending this gazillions of dollars uh, on, uh, on trying to effect change, you know, how wasted our money was. Yeah, that's how I think about it. I just feel quite, I feel quite gutted, actually. Uh, well, when I think about, well, you know, we could have perhaps thought about this differently. And when I was when I was starting up T four, 
you know, I had a conversation with, with, with some fairly like, you know, senior people around the world. And one of them um, at the OECD, Andres Schleicher, said to me, like, you know, and he has, you know, probably the most influential man in education policy in the world. Uh, and he, he said something which was quite revealing. He said, if he was to start again, he may think about this a lot differently, which is to think about grassroots approaches uh, to education reform, because it's quite clear that top down uh, doesn't and hasn't worked as well or in, in the logical way that it should have. And I thought that was really interesting. And the more and more I scratched the surface, you know, the more and more I became angrier and angrier actually at myself uh, at being at thinking that the only way to to have this transformation that we're looking for is just top down. Um, and so when I when I think about all these set piece movements that that which I think are important to galvanize and all that kind of stuff, all I'm saying is, you know, maybe there's another way to do it. And my way is perhaps having tried top down, let's try bottom up or grassroots up, as I like to call it. You know, there's this phrase that Warren Buffett often uses in the, obviously in the financial markets kind of framework, but it kind of equally works well. And it's a little bit more dramatic than I intended to be. Uh, and so, and so then what, you know, what Warren Buffett said was, um, you know, you know, who's been swimming naked when the tide goes out. And that's what's happened during the pandemic. You know, when you see all this like learning loss or learning poverty exasperated, you know, I see, I see about all the chaos that's ensued. Well, it, it makes me even angrier, like saying, well, what were the decision makers doing? And that's what really, 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 um, you know, it really does upset me. And so when I think about, when I think about that, I think, well, our route is probably far more fundamental which is go at it from the grassroots, you know? These are the people who are dealing with the issues uh, and we have to support them. And so I, I'll give you an example. During the pandemic, for example, at the beginning, we was on a Zoom call with education ministers from around the world. They were talking about mitigation strategies for school feeding programs. And I was just thinking, you know, if you just turned on Facebook and you looked at the, your feeds, you'll see schools and teachers dealing with this in real time. Why are we having this discussion? Yeah, shouldn't you, if those people are dealing, shouldn't, shouldn't they be in this room, right? Uh, and they were, they were very jarred by that perspective. Uh, and this is what underscores this belief that actually, let's, let's listen to the front lines a lot more. Um, I think we may benefit from it. I'm not saying that top-down doesn't work. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it, we have perhaps reposed too much confidence in it and we have to think about all different approaches to make sure that we get over the line. That's how I think about it. I did a recording for the show with Duncan Green um, the other day, who's a lead strategist at Oxfam. And he was talking about the phrase positive deviance. Hmm. And that is where you, you know, one or two people within a system have already cracked what to do. It's exactly what you've been talking about. You, you yeah. learn from the people working on the ground and you used the phrase earlier about a humbling phenomenon. And I think humility is important, right? Yeah. Especially those people at the very top. You have to somehow sit back and say, well, the people working with kids every day will be the best people to, to come in and talk about this. A lot of them out there will have, will have figured out what to do and will have figured out amazing um, really inspiring innovations to get over certain problems. We've built up, a we've allowed for a narrative to be built up, saying that teachers are like childminders, 
we're not to equate with another profession. What I'm saying is we've allowed for the for the profession to be, you know, uh, to lose to lose status. Like you know, in, in ancient India, the word guru meant like, the highest position, right? Even in India, you mm. look at, and you mm. think, well, no one wants to become a teacher in the right mind, right? And we're but, sitting here amid teacher strikes in the UK. There's a massive teacher recruitment and retention crisis, and mm-hmm. actually, we have to get our heads around that. And like you know, let's pay teachers well. Let's make sure they're working in conditions, uh, you know, are, are fantastic. You know, if we if we if we really believe in reposing confidence in education and believe in SDG number four, uh, uh, you know, workforce issues are probably front and center of should be front and center of everyone's minds, and that's just and the thing is that these are tough nuts to crack. Because it's not as if there's a global system; it's on a nation by nation basis. Mm-hmm. Like, and we need to think about how we support and strengthen the teaching profession, get the best and the brightest into teaching, and they, they, we have to be focused on that. If we believe that education, um, you know, matters, that is what the goal should be. Now, going back to going back to you, you mentioned that you you ran a, a philanthropic organization. Mm-hmm. Um, what? What what about before that? What first took you into the world of education advocacy? Was there a particular moment or period of your life that set you on the path you have taken? Well, um, uh, great question, actually. And uh, you know, uh, it, it's I only ask because you mentioned that you weren't an educator yourself. So I'm wondering what what interested in you in this. No, it, it was during my tenure in the philanthropic foundation that I that I created and I ran that you know I something flicked in my head. Um, saying, gosh, you know, I've never really thought about education in such a way. And it is just such a vast area that I think I should commit to it for the rest of my life and my career. Uh, and it was just it was just a culmination of various things. I didn't come from education. Like, you know, I had a pretty commercial career before that. Uh, and 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 as soon as as soon as that that switch flicked, everything started falling into place for me. It was quite interesting. Like I started just because I was just much more engaged. I was just, you know, I was seeking knowledge. Um, I was engaging with incredible people. And that's what set me up. And the, the most inspiring conversations I've had are with teachers, funnily enough. Like, you know, I just think, well, you know, we have a lot to learn. If I think in terms of the world of work, like, you know, forget education for a second. You know, if you look at the work, the, the, the modern workplace today, you know, how do you motivate your staff? And they said, well, teachers have to you know, do that to kids every day, every minute of the day. I could learn something from this teacher, like, you know. And I, I think of it from that basis uh, and how fundamental, not just the sector is, but how cherished and valuable the, the profession is. Yeah, I often think that if you can control 35 kids in a class and, and get them on task, you can do pretty much anything in, in the no, world I, of work. I, I, also, I also read this statistic. I can't, I, I didn't, I can't quote the exact um, study, but it said something like teacher, teaching as a profession, probably uh, teachers make more decisions in a day than any other profession. And I thought, wow. And it's something like a rate of something like every three minutes or something like that. Like, you know, and I just think, wow, like, you know, that's to be a, that's why I'm saying we've got to we've got to think about how we build the capacity of the profession. You know, it's not it's not a cakewalk. And actually, one of the one of the one of the time during the pandemic, there was this WhatsApp video that went around with, you know, when homeschooling was happening. And there was this video that was shared with me where, you know, parent, a, a parent was like you know, pulling their hair apart. Like, oh, my God, like, you know, bring back school, like, you know. Uh, gosh, how tough is this? 
well, the pandemic showed like teaching is a profession. It's a very intellectually challenging job. Until that pandemic moment, I'm not sure it clocked uh, with many people. You know, we should be, we, we, should, we would do better in making sure people understood how demanding and how challenging the job is. And I think that's also what makes it attractive, by the way. Um, you know, it's not, you know, people, I mean, do people really want to join business in an easy, an easy profession? No, people are, are motivated by challenges. They're motivated mm. by lifting themselves up and achieving great things. And I think teaching is a great, great vocation and a great profession. And and responsibility, I suppose. Those those that um, decision every three minutes. Each one is a, a decision that could could change yeah. a life. Right? It's 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 a responsible responsible role. Um, and then yeah, I mean, and from that, you're now to many the face of inclusive education SDG four. I mean, you're you're very high profile in that world. You you speak at the World Economic Forum. You've discussed educational issues with the great and the good from Tony Blair to President Paul Kagame to Charlie Theron and Lewis Hamilton. Do you have any memorable moments from your time in the spotlight? I've been fortunate, Richard. <laughs> I, you know, I used to run a philanthropic foundation and, and the truism there is that, you know, your job is to give away money. And so you become, you kind of become a very important person when you walk into a room because that's how they treat you. But you're a fool to believe that that's going to be forever, right? Um, but I, I've had immense opportunities and I, I'm inspired by so many people. But, you know, um, I used to run a prize for the Global Teacher Prize, you know, million dollar prize. And many of the teachers there just totally just blew me away every time, like, you know, about what they were doing, how they were doing it, just their ambition, their, um, you know, their commitment. And it's those everyday stories and, you know, that actually moves people because of emotion. You, know, you think in terms of like, you know, you, again, you, you traverse this world of being a consultant at UNESCO, right? And you look at all those fact reports that are written, yet we have these challenges, right? The knowledge from these reports surely should be able to fix all our problems. And why haven't, why, why haven't this research, why, hasn't, why haven't the reports, why haven't the efforts put by academia really changed the world, like in, in education? And one of the things I'll say to you is that it's emotion, actually. It's storytelling. It's about... It's about the human connection that actually, I think, drives behavior as well. Uh, and so we have to think of it from that basis. So every opportunity I get to meet someone, I have something to learn. I have something to gain. I have some, they may move me in a particular way. And you have to be open to that. And that's what I really look forward to. I think we have, we have to learn from everyone. The challenge is so humongous that um, we have to apply our best faculties, our, you know, our best foot forward to make sure that future generations have the best opportunities possible. And you mentioned yourself, some of the most inspiring people you've spoken to are the, the teachers yes. themselves. I'll ask you the most difficult question to finish on. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts about the future of education. What needs to happen to raise the quality of education and make it available to all? I think we need to recruit, train, and retain the best teachers in our systems. It's as simple as that in my head. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm not saying that it's the only thing, but I think it's such a, it unlocks so many different aspects of this challenge that we face, uh, if we get this right, that I think the multiplier effect of that is just for society to gain in such an immeasurable way um, that that's why I focus on it. Now, when someone says like, you know, uh, I, I get asked this question. Sometimes I do. I, I'm invited to speak with 
you know, various audiences. And so I was speaking to an investment banking company, like, you know, a group of senior executives. And they said, um, you know, what can we do? What can we do like to, to make sure that we have the best education and we're a bank and we give money? I said, sure, but it's not a matter of money. You know, um, it's a matter of you recognizing the importance of the teacher. Like, you know, when was the last time you actually, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit schmaltzy, isn't it? So how, when was the last time you thanked a teacher? Mm-hmm. It matters. When was the last time you were having dinner at home? I, I live in Northwest London and we talk about our kids' education every every dinner time. When was the last time, rather than turn the narrative into negative, you said, oh, that's an incredible math teacher. People may be more enticed to become math teachers as a result of it. And I think these are the small things that we can do that have humongous ripple effects. And so that's why I think if there was one thing about the future of education, I said, let's recruit train and retain the best teachers in our systems. I think that's what that's what our kids deserve. Uh, that's what we all deserve. Um, you know, there's this fundamental truth, uh, which um, has been used many times, but I'll repeat because it is, it does talk about this. So the SDGs, so this is the SDG4 podcast. You know, one of my bugbears is why are there 17 SDGs? Surely we only need one. Because no matter what the question, education is the answer. Vikas Porter, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks a lot, Richard. That was Vikas Porter. And my thanks to him for joining me. And thank you for listening. If you're a teacher with a story to tell or with ideas to share, I'd love to hear from you, as I'm sure the whole Goal 4 community would. You can get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Just search for Richard Ingram or through at Goal 4 Podcast on Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it around. All the best for your week, and I'll see you next Wednesday.